Hello, Gen Con. I'm your host, Brian Holland from Chaosium, and welcome to Horror on the Tabletop. We are all super psyched to be here and have uh, each and every one of you joining us from all around the globe. For many of us, horror holds a special place in our hearts. It allows us to explore stories through a unique lens that taps into something primal within each of us. Um, and horror is a polarizing genre, and it can be hard to really articulate why we enjoy engaging in something that makes us feel frightened. In fact, the subject of horror and horror storytelling, particularly in games, lends itself to a plethora of questions, often with multiple answers. So tonight, myself and our panel seek to answer some of those questions as we explore what I personally believe is the best genre to play at your tabletop. We'd love for each of you to join in on the conversation tonight. I'll be choosing some of your questions throughout the night to pose to our panelists. To ask a question or get involved in the conversation, simply tweet using the hashtag GenConHorror so that's hashtag GenConHorror on Twitter with any discussions or questions you may have. Uh, before we really dive into the meat of our conversation, I just want to go around and uh, meet each of our panelists. And I'd like to ask each of them, what was their first horror gaming experience and what is it that they personally love about horror? Uh, so let's start with uh, Amanda. So tell us a bit about uh, yourself, uh, what you do in the industry, and then than how horror got its claws in you, its proverbial claws, one hopes. Hi, um, so my name is Amanda Hammond. I am the editorial director over at Kobold Press. I'm also an author, um, a writer, a designer, a developer for a number of different types of games. Um, people may be most familiar with my work for Paizo uh, on uh, Starfinder, which I co-created um, as a system and the setting, and also on uh, Pathfinder, both first and second edition. Um, I have been playing and loving horror for most of my life, um, some of my earliest tabletop RPG experiences involved horror, and um, I had a particularly memorable game that um, I actually ended up playing uh, in hell in some of uh, an early homebrew system in which we were PCs who tr were trapped uh, within the depths of hell having to figure out how to unlock the different gates to get ourselves out. Um, so that's been a genre that I've enjoyed for, for the longest time across all types of media, and most of my writing ends up being a horror type of experience, even if I don't necessarily intend it to be. Um, so uh, I love gothic horror and I love uh, horror in space and I love body horror and all sorts of different things. So that's my feel. Do, do you recall, Amanda, what your first horror tabletop experience was? Yeah, it was definitely that game that took place um, in Howl as the PCs woke up from having... <laughs> Uh, a very uh, a very raucous night at a, at a tavern that was kind of the early sort of session zero of play and as we woke up we slowly realized that our surroundings were a version uh, of our worst nightmares uh, and so that was that was I was very young I was a teenager at the time and so uh, that was kind of one of my first experiences of like the thing that the, the DM is setting up uh, as uh, the conceit of the game is not necessarily the direction that it's going to go so I was just really hooked at that point of like this unexpected experience can, uh, you know, just kind of really like make it something, make an experience that is uh, just kind of like cerebral and uh, really kind of off-putting and all of that. It was, it was a very early formative experience. Uh, next, uh, Thomas. Well, Thomas? Uh, Thomas, Thomas is fine. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a bit about who you are, what you do in the industry, and uh, what you love so much about horror, if you do, assuming you do, and that I've chosen you correctly. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, my name is Thomas Herrenstam. I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Free League Publishing uh, and the, the lead designer, one of the lead designers of the Alien RPG that came out last year alongside Andrew Gaska and some other people. So that's, and uh, I'm also one, I've, we recently released a new horror game called Vesen. It's uh, about Nordic horror uh, based in Nordic folklore. So I've I'm, I'm been working on that as well. So I've been, that's kind of my role, I guess. Yeah, and horror games have been with me. I mean, I've been, been almost as long as RPGs have been with me. I think the very first horror RPG experience was, uh, there was a Swedish translation of the horror game Chill uh, that came out in the 80s. I played that probably the first one. It was like a haunted house story. That was fine, but I think the, mo the big impression, the first horror game that really sunk its teeth into me was uh, a Call of Cthulhu scenario that my brother uh, GM for me and some other some other people and it was uh, uh, I think it was called the nightmare in Norway I haven't I mean it, it was one of those 80s games and we just <laughs> felt I, at that time I think we felt it was really cool that it was set in not Sweden but Norway it was like close enough we just figured that was amazing and that that whole thing of, of uh, horror in the darkness and the snow and, and, and the woods uh, just kind of uh, that, that was a strong experience and I was like 11 or 12 years old at the time so I think that that might have helped as well so I never forget never forgotten about that so uh, that's probably the the first really big uh, horror RPG experience that that I had it's great how those sort of things stay with us for a really long time Amanda yeah. said that your first one was when you were in your teens as well right so mm -hmm. we tend not yep. to forget those formative years mm -hmm. uh, next let's uh, hear from Crystal Hi, I'm Crystal Mazer. I am a writer and game designer. Um, I worked on Chicago by Night. Um, I wrote the history section for Chicago by Night from Onyx Path. I am the line developer for Pip System from Third Eye Games. And I wrote on Snowhaven and Never Going Home from Wet It Games. Um, and a whole bunch of other stuff that's coming out that I can't talk about right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, but my, my very first um, dive into horror, actually, I, I worked at a haunted house for 17 years. And I started when I was in middle school. And um, that kind of drove me to try to find other, like, avenues of experiencing different types of horror. And it, that led me to Vampire the Masquerade in high school. And so Vampire was my very first role-playing game. And I still play it with the people that I played with in high school. Um, though not as frequently as, you know, when we had a lot more free time. <laughs> um, but I, I absolutely love, like, the suspense within, within horror. Um, I am, I, I enjoy multiple different types of horror, body horror, suspense horror, um, psychological horror, splatter horror, um, B-movie horror, that, like, all of that stuff is just really fun and interesting and intriguing um, and very uh, inspirational for me. Excellent. And uh, last on our panel, but certainly not least, uh, Mr. Mike Mason, uh, please introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about uh, what, what you do in this, this industry. Hi, uh, yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I'm in my day job. I'm the creative director for uh, Call of Cthulhu at Chaosium. Um, for my sins, I co-wrote the latest edition of Call of Cthulhu, the tabletop role-playing game. Uh, I also co-wrote the first Warmer 40,000 role-playing game, Dark Heresy. Um, 
And um, I've been into horror a long, long time. I started by, uh, well, I grew up in 1970s Britain, so uh, every day was a horror story, um, not least of which public information films for children about the dangers of playing on building sites and playing with water, uh, which you can watch on YouTube, by the way, The Spirit of Dark Water. Go and watch it. Um, so we got introduced to horror at a very early age uh, in school. Uh, I've been reading horror stories before I was in my teens. Uh, the first horror game I played was Jaws. The, you know, the one that's a bit like Bookery, where you've got the mouth of the shark full of junk and you have to pick it out. That was closely followed by the Haunted Mansion, where you drop a marble into the Haunted Mansion. And, uh, yeah, I just loved it. Uh, and then uh, I got into role-playing and... Uh, in 1981, well, probably more like 1982, Call of Cthulhu came out, and that was the first um, tabletop RPG that was a horror game. It's the first one I played, and I've been playing it ever since. Um, yeah, I, you know, it was it hooked me straight away. I've been playing many other types of games before then, mainly you know running around dungeons and hitting things, and then I discovered a game where there was a story. And then I was completely hooked. And the fact that it had a story and it was a horror game was, uh, you know, gold dust to me. So uh, that's really what got me started. And that's what I still do to this day. A uh, very enviable position. <laughs> uh, so uh, I said at the start of the, uh, the, the top of the panel that um, I'm Brian Holland. I, uh, uh, I'll be the host for tonight. Uh, I said that I work for Chaosium. I also work for Paradox Interactive on the World of Darkness team. So working with Vampire the Masquerade across a number of different uh, products and, and stuff, which is exciting. Um, in terms of myself, uh, my first horror game was also my first role-playing game, which was actually Vampire the Masquerade uh, back in about 2005. And um, did I say Vampire the Masquerade? I should have said Vampire the Requiem. It's in 2005. <laughs> I did, right? Sorry, I'm still sleeping. It's a very yeah. different game. It's a very different game. No, it's an important distinction to make that I like making uh, because uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a, amongst the vampire community, it's a very polarizing thing, but I like to remind people that uh, I'm, while I'm entrenched in Masquerade now to the point that I actually work for the company that is uh, producing it, um, I actually got my hooks into it with uh, with Requiem, um, and uh, yeah, I'm. I still my, my endeavor in life is to be able to articulate why I enjoy horror when I can't think of anything worse than being frightened alone in in, in dark at, at night. I don't understand it. Maybe one day I will. Uh, maybe we'll figure it out tonight. We don't know. <laughs> so let's uh, move along to um, our sort of first topic. Um, I'd love to talk about the essentials for running a horror game. So there may be people in the audience today who um, run horror regularly and they're, they're looking for tips and props on how to, to, to continue doing that. Or there might be people who uh, are curious about running horror for the first time or people who have tried to run horror but have found it difficult for whatever reason. Um, so I suspect this subject will be very subjective um so what do each of us think are the essential things needed to to run horror at the tabletop effectively like is it a mindset is it is it props is it um my personal thing which is like having the right group of people involved uh so let's let's go uh, go the other way maybe start with mike and get uh, your your thoughts on this particular subject um i mean where to start really i mean there's a hundred and one things you could say i think uh, i i think i what i would say is uh well i'd like to say two things First of all, with a horror game, I think the essential is understanding that you can't, uh, it can't be horrific all the time. It doesn't work. You watch a horror film, it isn't horror, 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 horror. It's stretches of things and then horror. It's a stretch and then a horror. 
and it's the same for a game. And I see comments on forums a lot of the time about you know people asking how to make their game scary and and kind of almost being disheartened about the fact that they they couldn't you know keep keep the horror going. You it's impossible. You cannot keep the horror going. You have to build the horror, and that's what I think the essential is about is about understanding. It's about a building uh, a building of horror, uh, which usually means building tension, building an atmosphere that kind of generates, you know, the right kind of um, ingredients to have horror, whatever that may be, happen, you know, in the game. Um, I think that's a real essential understanding that, you know, you need to understand that you need to prepare and build the horror and that it's, uh, and the kind of the second thing which kind of links to that is that it's about a story. Uh, We love, you know, Throughout, before there was games, there were stories, and um, and we're still telling stories. We're just doing it through games, and everyone, you know, not everyone, but most people like a horror story because it has an end. There's a real point to a horror story. There's a there is a beginning, there is a middle, and there's a definite end with a horror story. There's normally a payoff, of, you know, a twist or whatever it may be, and so um, I think understanding that it's about you know, having a story that's got a, a you know a definitive kind of ending or, or, or a climax of some kind are the kind of for me uh, you know key ingredients in terms of the essentials of you know what is a horror game. Yeah, I uh, I definitely agree with you. Uh, I, all those points, but the, the ones for me that you brought up uh, was at the, the beginning when you were saying that it can't be horror all the time. Uh, it, definitely something to highlight is the idea of uh, giving their players like a sense of reprieve. Um, so they've not only got something to compare the horror to, but so they've also got something to sort of chase. Like if it's constantly horror and they've got an idea of what it's like to not be horror, it gives also the characters a reason to continue pushing forward through horrific scenarios, I find. Uh, Crystal? Um, so I think one of the, the essentials for horror that you need um, to, um, to tell a good story is actually having a reason for the horror. Um, you know, just having someone slashing people in a park is not, it is not interesting and would not keep my interest as, as a role player. Um, I, I would be trying to figure out why these are happening. You know, what, what is the reason behind all of it? How can I stop it? Um, you know, what, what makes, makes that aspect of, of the story um, interesting is that dive into that that type of that part of the story too, um, and uh, like one of the the best uh, movies, for example, for this would be Thirteen Ghosts. There is a reason between behind all of that, and there are some horrific scenes in that movie. <laughs> um, but all of the the ghosts all have reasons for what they are doing, and all of the humans have motivation for what they are doing as well. And I think that plays a huge part in, in telling a good horror story. Yeah, it definitely always comes back to, uh, as Mike was saying as well, the, uh, the fact that we're sitting here to tell a story. And one good way I find to approach your horror on the tabletop is to pretend your table is just a campfire and you're just going back to the old school, just telling ghost stories around the campfire mm-hmm. type thing, but a bit more interactivity. Uh, Thomas? Yeah, no, I agree with with what what the others have said here. I'm just gonna, I mean, and the the point about not going full horror all the time, I think, is worth you know really mentioning again. And 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 just the, I think especially in a, for role playing games, I think for all horror media, even movies, you you need that kind of reprieve. You need that sense of dread and these kinds of quieter moments in between. And I think role playing games, that's even more so because. 
at least in my experience, it's kind of hard in a role-playing game to have that, you know, you can do that splatter thing, you can do that body horror, but it's, that is very hard to do well in a role-playing game. You really need to have a, you know, a game master that's really on their game to, to do that. But I think what's in a sense more effective and maybe easier in a role-playing game is to build dread and to have that kind of sense of mystery for me, that's a more effective way than to try to kind of overwhelm players with graphic descriptions of a horrific violence or something. That can have its place, but it can quickly get old. And if you do it wrong, it'll fail completely and, and have the you know, opposite effect. So I think in a, to make a game, horror game effective, building dread is, is, is the key thing and not move too fast into that really horror. Then you'll get there, but not too fast and this is something we should also touch a little bit upon in the in the alien game there's a, there's a bit about that and some gm advice on how to kind of build horror slowly and the stages of horror and so on i think that's something to really keep in mind when running a horror game uh, in my experience amanda what about yourself yeah, so I think we're going to talk about some uh, of this uh, version of my answer a little bit more in depth probably later in the panel. But for me, one of the biggest things is starting out from the right place. And um, when I mean when I say that, what I mean is uh, making sure that you as the game master have um, a very solid idea of what type of horror it is that you want to run, what type of story you want to tell, what elements um, of the game you're going to bring in. Um, and whether that's a number of different subgenres or you've got very specific things that you know you want to explore within the game um, thematically uh, or events that you know that are going to happen that will be horrific. Having a good sense of that is very important, but also having a discussion with the players and picking the people you're playing with uh, you know, carefully and making sure that that's something that they want to participate in and something that they're okay with um, is really important because then you're all sort of on the same page that they know what to expect. And I'm not saying you know, give spoilers for what's exactly gonna be in your game. I'm saying just categorically say, there's going to be body, body horror in here um, there are going to be, uh, you know, uh, san sanity draining things or, or whatever it is that are, are your top level themes for the game, making sure that all the players, um, that's what they want to experience uh, is really important because then everybody kind of is bought in and it's a, an extension of the social contract that we all have when we play any tabletop game, which is that we're sitting down together, we're creating a story, there's a certain suspension of disbelief as things are happening within the narrative, um, and we're all bought in on building that story together. Uh, when you refine that down into the horror experience, um, I think like starting out from that point is very important so that players don't, um, you know, it, it just get into something that they're not comfortable with or that there's not something that transpires uh, that is something that you didn't necessarily um, anticipate. And if something does come up and a player realizes, you know, that they're not okay with things, then they can talk to you about that. And that's a continuation of that social contract. So I think everybody sitting down and knowing we are going to play a gothic horror game where, you know, there's vampires and blood draining and it's wall of darkness or whatever it is. Um, but that's an essential part of it. And I kind of want to riff um, off something uh, that Mike uh, mentioned earlier, which is to, and, and other folks have mentioned as well, which is to pace out the horror with um, other stretches of types of, of types of experiences. And so when I hear that being said, I think, oh yes, that this is a tactic that I use very often as a game master, which is that you offer the PCs a little bit of hope 
and you thread that within all of the horrors that are happening within the game, and uh, maybe you snatch that away at a certain point uh, when there is a turning point in the narrative, or maybe you insert that um, as a, a way that the PCs aren't just completely demoralized, but I really feel like um, that having awful things happen and then the players feeling like they have agency and like they've got some way of kind of survival of moving forward, if that's the type of game you're playing, um, can be really effective in keeping the game flowing um, and keeping it from just really devolving into people realizing, oh, wow, I, you know, this is really, this is really very bleak and I'm not sure if I want to keep playing. I wanted to ask the panel, and uh, this, like most of the things you talk about, might be a bit polarizing. But um, I wanted to ask the panel about uh, props in in their yeah. games because I've heard different things. So I, I personally, depending on the, the horror game I'm playing, do like using props. So obviously, if I'm playing Call of Cthulhu, it's a very prop-heavy game. Um, and also, when I'm playing a game like Alien, I find the map uh, is very integral to the suspense element of uh, the horror and Alien. Um, but I've heard from other people that they don't like using props in their horror game because it helps, it, it can, they find it can take players out of the imaginative space, which is so integral to horror and into like our reality if you've got something tangible there. Uh, so open question, like who would like to, like, who's got some thoughts to, to share on that? Like it, props, how do you feel about it? Does it really depend on the game? Is it, is it a personal touch thing? Um, I'll, I'll go still, on yes. that one. Um, so I, I love using props, but I only use props if there are some sort of story hook that I can use for it. And it's not something that my friends or anybody at the table has seen before. Um, so like, I'm not going to pull a statue off of one of my shelves that has been up there forever that, you know, my friends have seen when they come over when we play, play games and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to either print something or I'm going to buy something and keep it you know, set away until I'm able to use it in my story. But I usually have some sort of plot hook or there's something on the, the, the tangible object that they have to see or feel or experience it, that ties into the story. It's not just there to be visual. It's there to be touched. It's there to be looked at and used and experienced um, in, so that I don't, feel that it pulls me or my my you know local gaming group but it might for others and i completely respect that but you know as as a gm it has to tie with the story mm -hmm. i think you know, um, it comes down to the style of horror game you're playing doesn't it i mean um you know some games survival horror game or scenario probably isn't going to be very many props that would be useful um you know, obviously there's a style of Call of Cthulhu that the common style is is an investigation. So that tends to be kind of an information-heavy kind of game. So um, having some of the information available on bits of papers, letters, journal entries helps to kind of disseminate that information in a you know in a in a variety you know in a varied manner. So it's not just the you know the keeper talking all the time, um, and allows you know the players to you know divulge and get into the information. Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm not personally. Uh, I mean, I'm perfectly, you know, willing to accept some people do find this. I find it um, difficult to understand the whole immersion thing because at some point they're going to pick up some dice, and to me, I see no difference in picking up some dice to reading a handout or whatever. You know, you're, you're playing a game at the end of the day. Um, so unless you're, you know, uh, live acting, and there are no dice or mechanics and you're acting basically, then you realize you're playing a game. At some point you're going to, there's going to be a game mechanic that enters that and, you know, it's inevitable. So I'm not, you know, I think 
you know, the whole kind of immersion thing, I, I find difficult to understand sometimes. Hmm. Uh, so the other question, uh, unless anyone had any other thoughts on props and that kind of thing, um, it was something I mentioned at the, the top of this sort of subsection, uh, something that I, a hurdle that I found personally sometimes, and I'd love to get everyone's thoughts on this, uh, is uh, that the mindset of the players at, at your table, and this will probably tie in a little bit to what Amanda was talking about and to what we'll talk about when it comes to the horror contract in a moment. Um, but uh, I've found, and some people who have tried to run horror for maybe their, their group has only ever played sort of more lighthearted D and D type stuff uh, is that um, having everybody in the right mindset uh, really helps with letting the horror do its thing. Um, and sometimes if, if people are not uh, as engaged or not as keen to that, they can really, you know, um, if, if we approach playing a horror game the same way as you might um, playing a, you know, a, a swashbuckling game of seventh C uh, it's, it's, it's going to make it more difficult for the horror to, to seep in. Um, so I wanted to get your, your thoughts on um, how, how do you approach maybe selling the concept of a, of a horror game to a group of players who maybe have never really engaged with horror on the tabletop? If anyone would like to jump in first, otherwise I'll pick one of you and you'll have to, you'll have to speak. I can, I can jump in. Thomas, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I just want to... I think Sometimes I think that uh, horror... In RPGs, is it's kind of like other RPGs, only it's harder in every way to get it right. There is a like the hurdle that there is like a higher bar to meet to get horror to really work, and that comes in in, in the buy-in and in kind of the atmosphere you want to build, the rules to to kind of that need to support the the horror. All of that you need that in all RPGs, but I think it's. It, the demands are a little bit higher for horror across the board in all of these fields. And just to get the right kind of buy-in to an example of that, I recently played a, a short uh, campaign of, uh, of the cult game, uh, the cult horror game fairly recently released with one of the, the designers. Uh, and, and he was very strict. I mean, usually with my normal gaming group, we're not super strict. I sometimes wish we were a bit stricter. Sometimes we were a bit fast and loose around the table and, and and but in this game he was like no then now we're playing cult this is a, you know this is not this is a serious horror game there will be no cell phones anywhere there is like there is uh, so he was very strict uh, to get into the right mood and he had like a, a theme song at the beginning of the of the of each session and and during that theme song nobody or was allowed to talk at all we're just kind of getting into the mood of the game and after that it's kind of like a now we're actually in the game and, and we're playing it. I think using small little tools like that can really help to just get your mind in the right place. And I think that's, that can be good for all games, but for horror games, and especially like that kind of horror game, I think that can really, really work. But it needs the right group because everyone has to commit. It's only if just one person just kind of falls out of that frame, it, it kind of falls apart. So it's, it's not easy. Yeah, I just want to second what Tomas said there, and that even if you are playing with players who are not used to playing horror in their tabletop RPGs, you're probably still playing with a group or a subset of your friends, and so you're going to know them at least on a superficial level, and so I would encourage game masters to pick players who you know like horror films, or you know that they enjoy uh, horror video games, or that they're interested in the subject matter, 
and uh, that they might enjoy the specific game that you're playing. So if you have a group who has only ever played, you know, like you said, D&D, a lighthearted game or something like that, and you say, okay, I'm going to run a horror game, but you don't really articulate exactly what it is that you're trying to create, um, or what uh, the differences between the genres are, and, you know, these are not necessarily people who are big horror aficionados, or they just, you know, aren't interested in another way, like, you're going to really probably struggle with that group, and you might end up with it devolving into different Monty Python jokes or things like that, which is not what you necessarily want, so... Uh, you know, really sort of being upfront about what game you want and um, be, it be if you're an experienced gamer and you have a lot of folks that you've played with, kind of picking the people who's right for that specific group is really a key to starting off on the right foot. Crystal or Mike, have any thoughts on this or you feel it's been covered? I, I do. Crystal, um, yeah. I actually have no hesitation in throwing horror into certain other games. So like if I have a long running game and I want to throw a little bit of horror into like a plot that I'm running, I will run like a Scooby-Doo style horror plot with the characters that are already established with that group and kind of give them a taste as far as what horror would be using a game and system and characters that they're already familiar with. Um, and just kind of add, either add to it or, you know, just give them a little flavor and then um, move on to to continue the story um, and then afterwards talk to them about hey if you want to run cults which is a very different game from many other games um, or alien RPG you know that's very different from what we're running um, or I can just keep throwing small little horror plots at you as, as this group in 7th C or D&D or anything like that you know I mean you can steal from Ravenloft all you want in D&D and use that in your any D&D setting so mm -hmm. uh, Mike do you have any thoughts on um, yeah I mean I think what everyone has said is you know spot on uh, but I would add um, I think <laughs> my, my number one advice and it's you know it, it answers most issues with role playing uh, is know your players if you know your players you know what they're going to like what they're not going to like what what's going to push their boundaries what's not going to push their boundaries um, and, uh, you know, and obviously we're, we're talking kind of, you know, home groups here in, in terms of people you play, I guess, regularly with. Obviously, when you go to a con game, all bets are off and there's a different set of rules apply sometimes. Um, but know your players, you know, understand, you know, what they're after. And because horror, you know, horror isn't one thing. It's a scale, like as in anything else, like fantasy. It's a scale. Is it gritty, dark fantasy? Is it high heroic fantasy, romance? You know, same for horror. Um, is it Scooby-Doo at that end? Or is it, you know, grim, grim, gut-wrenching, you know, despair at the other? Um, and um, a game can be all these things and more, or it can focus down on one particular, you know, section of the scale. Uh, so understanding your players, understanding what, you know, what they're looking for or what you think they may enjoy, because uh, you can always start down that end of the scale and you can always move it, you know, dim the lights more as you go down that end of the scale um if you find that they are liking it and the feedback is uh, yeah it's great i thought i thought it was going to be even more horrific than that mike could you could you put more horror in please um so i think you, know, you can you can build it um but i think if you know your players i mean there are some players there are people in i i find it hard to believe there are people in, in life who don't like horror and that's just fine this you know horror games aren't for them there are lots of other games they can play 
Um, but um, for those that, you know, enjoy a bit of horror, then, you know, that's great because you can really, you know, go to town. I really like what you said there about the the sliding scale. And uh, and I think once you find a game that helps work on that scale as well, it can be really good. Um, some of my personal favorite horror tabletop experiences are actually playing uh, the first edition of Dark Heresy uh, because, you know, anyone who's familiar with the grim darkness of the Warhammer 40,000 universe will know that, you know, it, it sort of can lend itself to horror, but there's so many other things going on in that universe that it doesn't always have to be horrific. But even if you're not doing an automatic horrific story in that world, there's always like a looming sort of darkness. So you can really slide into it. And um, you're always keeping players on their toes because essentially when you sit down to play a game like that, they're not sure really if it's going to go into the horror side of it, but they know that there's always a possibility of that. So yeah, like this having a sliding scale is, is, is very important. Um, so yeah, sort of what Amanda and um, Mike especially then was sort of touching on sort of bleeds us nicely into our next topic. Uh, so we'd like to talk about the the horror contract. Now we've we've touched on this a, a little bit already. So I just want to um, establish for those of you who may not know, but a horror contract is it's not really a hard set of rules. It really depends on group to group. That's one of the things I like to talk about here. Um, but it's essentially uh, the agreement that you're entering into uh, with your players to to tell the horror story or to play the horror game to make sure that everyone is remaining comfortable and is consenting to the themes and topics that you're going to be exploring. It's probably worth noting that in uh, role playing games in general, if you're not not doing a horror story it's important to still establish you know the type of game you're going to be playing to make sure that all your players are always very comfortable with what's what's happening um uh, amanda i might uh, get you to kick us off because you had some some thoughts on this uh, earlier and i'd love to hear them uh, expanded so what do you believe is the um best way to go about uh, establishing a horror contract with your players. Sure. Um, so that session zero that I mentioned before, I think is really important. And what is discussed in that session zero is very, can be very unique to the game that's being run and to the people that you're running it for. Um, you know, if you have strangers in your game, you're going to want to be much more cautious and um, err on the side of ex uh, explanation of, you know, what they're going to experience in the game. Um, and invite them to, you know, share if they have anything within, you know, those subgenres or in general that they're just not comfortable um, going with and making note of that and, you know, like shifting your plans maybe um, accordingly. Um, there are a number of different various like safety tools that can be used that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And again, it just comes down to what works best for your purposes in your game. Um, there, I'm going to talk about two primary um, ones that are in use pretty frequently. Uh, one is called Lines and Veils, and the other is the X card. So um, I, for those who might not be familiar, Lines and Veils is a pretty simplistic system in which um, there is a way of categorizing content um, that players uh, might experience in the game. And so there are some things that um, players might say they're okay with happening, but they don't want it to be described in a graphic fashion at the table. And so that would be something that you would draw a veil over as the game master. Um, say there's um, a couple players who are really not okay with really gross graphic descriptions of like bodily, bodily mutilation. So if you have something where that happens in the game, there's a big monster and the players come across that monster like ripping apart a person. Well, instead of describing that in great graphic detail, you could just draw a veil over it and say, you see something awful happening to this person and there's no way they could have survived it. Uh, we're just gonna draw a veil over that. What do you guys wanna do? And then there's a line, which is uh, there might be some content that some players just say, Absolutely not. Um, a common one might be no rape in the game. I absolutely don't want rape to happen. So that's something that you know up front 
and you can just not include in the game. And it's, so it's, you know, it's very good for sort of like broad categories of like there's stuff that is a hard stop for me and then there's some stuff that makes me kind of uncomfortable, but I understand it's horror. So, you know, we, um, that might happen, but it might not be super graphic. Um, the X card uh, is another pretty simple tool that um, is actually something that can be used continuously throughout all sessions. It's uh, literally a postcard that just has an X on it and you have it in the middle of the table. And if there's ever something that happens within the game where a player just goes, oh, wow, that's not okay. Like, I'm not okay with that. Then they can just touch the card and you as the game master don't need to, you know, have any explanation. You can just call for a quick break or you can just pivot from whatever it is that's happening and go to a different scene or have another player, you know, talk about what they're doing. Um, it's just a, a like a quick visual indication that something has started to go wrong and um, it's a tool for you as a game master to not accidentally continue down that path. Um, so, you know, again, just kind of being open and upfront um, with your players about what it is that they want to experience can really kind of help you uh, be guided toward one of those systems if either of them are appropriate for you. Uh, Thomas, your thoughts? No, I think those are really good, uh, good tools to use for this. And I, and I actually, think that, I mean, you might think there is some kind of a conflict here between because horror is supposed to make you in some, in, to some extent uncomfortable or put you in some kind of position that of, of something unexpected, something scary, something that, that kind of puts you out of your comfort zone to some extent. So, but I actually think having done that, what, what, what Amanda just described before, I think will actually help that, uh, not hinder it because then you're kind of you know your baseline and then you can kind of totally commit once you've done that. You don't have to kind of feel that you might wander into something that you're really not okay with. But then, but in, so I think that actually will actually, uh, at least to my experience, can, can help the uh, feeling of horror at the table rather than hinder it. So I think that's really good. Uh, Crystal? Um, yeah, I, um, I use the X card a lot, especially when I run games at conventions, um, usually because they're very quick. Um, it's a very quick explanation. It's very easy to use. Um, I've never actually had it touched when I've run uh, horror games, um, but I, you know, when I'm when I'm gaming with people that I don't know, I tend to not pull as many punches as with if I would with my friends, because uh, I know my friends very well. Um, but I think that a, a a lot of people tend to forget that when you put up those walls, those hard stops in those areas you have still this whole huge room to fill. So you actually get more creative with the things that you are doing and the story that you are telling when you put those hard stops in place. And you can actually tell a better story for everybody when you have those, those uh, uh, restrictions in place. Um, whether it's, you know, lines and veils, X card, um, you know, safety mechanics, or even just the genre of story you're telling you know what genre of horror are you doing are you doing suspense are you doing body horror are you doing something else um making sure that you stay within those restrictions and you will have a much better story because it'll be a lot cleaner and you'll get a lot more creative with what you have uh also just on the x card i wanted to clarify something because i was running a bunch of convention games here in australia for for vampire earlier in the year and we use the the x card and um one of my storytellers sort of said at the end of the first day, he said, oh, I don't think I, I, I did, did things uh, very well in my games today. I said, why is that? He said, oh, nobody, nobody ever touched the X card. 
<laughs> and I was like, no, that's a, a good thing. So, so while, while, yes, someone is supposed to touch the X card when they're uncomfortable and they want to move on, that's not your goal. <laughs> you, you don't oh. want to get to that point. No, you're not trying to. Because he, he, I think, misunderstood it a little bit in terms of, you know, like, he's, like he, he, you're not constantly trying to hit a ceiling to find where it is. You're trying to make sure everyone is comfortable. Um, yeah. Mike, you, you touched a bit on, on this uh, in, your, in, in the last uh, subject. Is there anything you'd like to expand upon? Um, I'm just trying to think. I mean, uh, I think it it, 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 it it does come down to having that conversation with your players before a game begins, um, explaining what the nature of the game or the scenario or campaign that you are, you know, looking for, you know, for them that they want to play uh, and explaining that, you know, um, it is a horror game. And if people don't, you know, understand what that means, then obviously having a conversation around what that means for you as the GM in terms of, you know, where, where this is a, this is a game where, you know, it's going to feature death. It's going to feature murder. It's going to feature crime, et cetera, et cetera. And going to feature, you know, unbelievable horrors from beyond the dimensions, either, whatever it may be. Um, and as Thomas uh, said, you know, uh, a pretty essential ingredient of horror is that kind of um, finding oneself out of one's comfort zone. But again, it's a scale. It's not, you know, throwing, throwing you in a cold bath to, you know, shock you. It's a scale and, uh, you know, there are degrees of discomfort uh, in the game. Uh, and some of them, um, you know, a lot of people are quite happy to be slightly discomforted, not necessarily completely scared witless, as it were. Um, so understanding that. Um, and at the end of the day, it's the game. It's a game. Uh, and I, if I need to explain that, there's something wrong, but it's a game. Uh, so, you know, it isn't, you know, you aren't putting yourself, you know, uh, voluntarily into being, you know, terrified, witless as a real person. You are experiencing fun. And, you know, for some people, you know, horror is fun. But the reason is because it's a safe environment to enjoy that horror. We're not actually going walking in the woods or in the middle of my local town at 12 o'clock on a Friday night when the pubs close. You know, it, it, it's... It's, um, you know, a safe environment to explore, you know, themes of horror. Um, and it's working out what themes people are happy and comfortable, you know, playing in the game with. Um, one thing that I've sometimes heard come up as a concern from, uh, from newer GMs or, or players when it comes to establishing a horror contract is the fear of uh, spoiling the story. Or uh, so, so if, you, if you say at the top of your game that like, oh, you know, I just want to check, is everybody okay with, with body horror? And then everyone says, oh, yeah, that's great. I love body horror. Uh, are you at a danger of being like, wow, I wish I hadn't told you all that I was going to do body horror, uh, whatnot. Um, is there a, because obviously we, we still have to make sure that everyone's comfortable with their topics. Um, is just an open question to the panel. Is there, is there a creative way any of you have found to uh, go about uh, establishing these, these consent and agreements with everybody while also um, maintaining a sense of uh, suspense and not spoiling any aspects of your own story? I can um, jump in if nobody wants to. <laughs> Manda? Yes? Sorry, was sure. Um, so I think that you can tread a very fine line um, between uh, content notes, basically, content warnings, and actual specific spoilers. So that's why you might categorically say, um, I've got, uh, you know, 
I've got this sort of thing planned. Um, I've got a psychological game planned in which you might question your reality, right? Or I've got a psychological game planned where you, uh, you know, may lose your memory uh, and, you know, things have happened to you that you don't understand or remember and things like that. Um, you don't necessarily have to give the specific details um, of, oh, there's going to be, you know, somebody mind controlling somebody else. You don't have to give the spoilers for what your big payoff is. Um, you can sort of categorically lead them in that direction. And then, you know, as you get there and as you work toward that big reveal, you will get a better sense of how people are receiving um, your game. And uh, yeah, I also think that um, there's a general understanding of people who play tabletop RPGs that player knowledge and character knowledge are not the same thing. So even if you might slip a little bit on the side of a minor spoiler, that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't have as much of an effect in game because the characters and the players won't know the specific context of when that's coming up. And, um, you know, even if they can kind of figure it out, uh, the the character that's still the thing happening to the character and the player doesn't um, necessarily need to apply that player knowledge to what the character is doing. Um, so in that way, spoilers are a little bit less of a concern as long as you kind of point out, like, look, just because you as a player suspect that something is going to happen doesn't mean that your character has any idea that's, that that's going to happen. Um, so just reminding folks um, can be helpful in that case. Uh, anyone else thoughts on that? Mike, yes? Throw it, I just wanted to throw in one, one side from the other side of the uh, GM screen. Um, I think, particularly the role-playing games historically, there's a lot of onus put on you know, the GM. You know, they're the ones who've got to have this conversation with the players at the start. They're the ones who've got to get the X card out. They're the ones who've got to kind of, you know, give an outline of the play. And that's all cool, and that's what we all do. However, it is as much the player's responsibility to, to you know, inform the group and the, and the GM about what their expectations may or may not be, or if, they're, you know, if they've got a concern, um, you know, to be able to feel comfortable to, you know, to raise that either in the group or one-to-one you know, -one or on an email with the keeper before, you know, before the game starts or whatever, just to help steer, help steer things, you know. And, you know, players have a responsibility. It is their game as well. The, the, the GM isn't there to entertain the, the players around the table in that, in that style. It's a group game. Everyone's playing it together. Um, and um, I think, you know, we sometimes forget that players have a responsibility to, to you know, to, uh, to help shape the game as well. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the, the best tools you can use, um, which, which is something I use a lot, uh, particularly if I'm starting a new campaign or if I'm working with a group of players who I don't know as well, um, is to get all the players to uh, anonymously uh, fill out this um, form called the RPG Consent Checklist. Uh, yep. If you just Google RPG Consent Checklist, you can find it there. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong. I believe it was Monte Cook Games that put it out originally. I may be incorrect on that. Yeah, it was. Yes, I mean, it's not very good. Yeah, um, and that that'll make it very clear to you as the GM um, what you can and cannot do um, with with this group of players, and the fact that you can sort of keep it anonymous. No one's going to be sort of self conscious about you know saying what they are are not comfortable with. Um, the other thing that is very helpful are games that actually find a way to build this into uh, their mechanics. So, um, I, I mean, uh, Thomas mentioned uh, Cult earlier, which is a game that I like a lot, and it is. It is also a lot. There are a lot <laughs> of things in that game. It's, it's very, there's a lot. But one of the things that, that I think that game does particularly well is it builds in this um, 
very clear cut um, version of um, lines and veils that uh, Amanda was talking about into the mechanics of the game and very much encourages you to to cut that off where you can. Um, and like the current edition of Vampire the Masquerade has a um, a mechanic called your chronicle tenets, which uh, you as a group decide on what your chronicle tenets are. And, and while this mechanically will affect how your characters maintain their humanity, um, what it really does is establishes the moral backbone of the story you're going to tell. And it keeps you all in line with um, like, a, this is what we are okay with while we are playing as monsters. So there are definitely tools out there. Um, so stemming off from that, I would love to talk about the, the mechanics of monsters and the mechanics of horror. So um, while we can certainly tell horror stories and play horror games in games that are not designed uh, for horror, um, there are, I believe there's an extra element that makes the gamification of our horror uh, even better when you're playing a game that, was designed with horror in mind. So I'm talking, of course, about the sanity mechanic in Call of Cthulhu uh, or the corruption mechanic in uh, Dark Heresy, the uh, hunger mechanic in Vampire uh, and the panic, the panic dice system in, in Alien. So I suppose uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to hear from the, the panel is, um, one, uh, how, how essential do you feel these things uh, are to have? Would you, would you always, if your players wanted to play a horror game, would you first sort of steer them away from, you know, injecting horror into what you're already doing so you have access to these mechanics? And two, if you are playing a, a horror game that has these dedicated mechanics, how do you go about uh, utilizing them? Is there a danger of over or under using these things? Um, so it might start with, uh, with Thomas. Um, I'd love to hear more about the, you know, the panic, the panic dice mechanic in Alien, which I think is so quintessential to that experience, but also just in general, how you feel about uh, mechanics that reinforce uh, horror and suspense. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a key thing and, and, and a tricky balance when with doing horror, I mean, it, it's not, it's, you need that sense of suspense and immersion. You need that in all RPGs, but I think particularly for horror games. And that can be a balance to strike between that and rules in general. I mean, you don't, so I think uh, for horror games particularly, you don't want them to be very rules heavy. Uh, I mean, I think most good horror games tend to be rules light. And that's at least the kind of idea. But then you also want some kind of key mechanic that reinforces the horror or that particular type of horror story that the game is designed to tell. So I think Call of Cthulhu does that really well with the sanity mechanic. It's kind of like the, the key thing. The rest of the mechanics are fine too, but I think the sanity mechanic is the kind of that, that you know, you, you keep in mind. And I think we tried to do a similar thing in a way with the, with the stress and panic mechanics in, in Alien is that to have the rest of the game fairly scaled down in that kind of rules engine that we use, this is probably well, the most rules-like version or yeah, maybe there is another one pretty close to it but it's definitely rules light and and the focus is on the stress mechanic to so that the other stuff doesn't get in the way i mean there is rules for other things as well but it, it they're toned down scaled down so that the key horror mechanic that we're going for can really take uh, you know center uh, take the stage and, and that's where the focus will be and uh, in and even doing so, I think another thing is that, that that even that core mechanic needs to be fairly fairly simple, easy to grasp, so that you can keep the immersion going and the and the and the flow of the game going, and that the rules doesn't stop you uh, all the time. So I think that's also one of the ideas. But in this the stress mechanic in in the Alien is to add these stress dice. It's a very simple 
visual and, and, and tactile um, simulation of, of that building tension. You get these dice that keep building and you know that eventually you will crack. It's only, it's only a question of when. And, and that, that, I think finding something, I mean, that's what we tried to do, to find some kind of fairly simple but meaningful mechanic that kind of reinforces the theme of the game and then keep everything else fairly scaled down. I mean, at least that was the, the whole idea behind, behind uh, the alien rules, the way they look. Uh, Crystal? Um, one of, like, I love the Hunger Dice system from Vampire the Masquerade. I believe that it was a great addition to move away from just a pool of blood. And instead, now you are continually battling against your beast to do anything. And every time you roll the dice, you take a chance on losing it. And I think that adds so much horror um, to, to that game, personal horror, because you could just be talking to a dude on the street and lose it. And now you have a mess to clean up. Um, and I, I absolutely love that um, as, a, as a game designer. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I, I really love visual stuff as well. So watching you add more dice to, you know, more hunger dice to your rolls. Or um, with chill, the chill mechanic where you flip over the, the tokens back and forth between the GM and the players was a fantastic visual where, you know, you're flipping more and more over to get more stuff done, but you're coming to the end and that big bag monster has not shown up yet. And now he has all of these tokens to use against us, you know, is a, is a fantastic visual suspense um, that I absolutely love. Um, so yeah, uh, visual stuff, mechanic stuff, I think are almost as, as, as essential as the storytelling and descriptions and role-playing around the horror story. Mike? Um, well, you mentioned sanity. I mean, Cthulhu is often, you know, called, you know, called out for the sanity mechanic, you know, the, to, uh, but basically models the, the um, kind of behavior of the protagonists in the fiction on which, you know, kind of inspires the game, that kind of, you know, early 20th century kind of weird, uh, weird fiction and horror fiction. Um, and um, it's about a kind of a, you know, when you're, when the human mind is touched by the other, the, you know, the inhuman, the, the, the cosmic, um, it, it has this kind of corrupting effect. Um, and that's what the kind of the sanity kind of mechanic models in the game. But I think, I think there are other mechanics in the game that um, support the horror as well. I, I don't think it's just one mechanic that does that in Call of Cthulhu. Um, uh, you know, the pushing the role in Call of Cthulhu is very much about um, uh, giving, whilst whilst giving players agency to make, basically make a to make a, a second attempt at a, at a role to achieve a goal, um, they do so with the full knowledge that if they fail that role, they give the keeper permission to increase the horror, to increase the the threat against them, the, the, to increase the uh, the stakes basically, um, and so that mechanic in itself helps to build tension because when players, uh, sorry, when roles get vital, when there's a really vital role, there is a real kind of, you know, decision whether they, they're going to push the role because they know that, you know, the outcome could make things far, far worse. So that kind of, um, 
you know, supports the kind of general kind of horror play of the game and things like look spending as well, the optional look spending rule, which mirrors sanity in that it's a downward spiral for the character. They get, they, they, but it's done by the players. It's, it's about giving the players enough rope to, to hang their own characters, really. Um, that, you know, they get player agency, but there is a, there is a, you know, a, a, a bad return for it. You know, their character will fare worse by doing, by being, by things happening for them now, at the end, you know, nearer the climax or when it really counts, they will be in a, a you know, a less fit state to, to deal with that as characters. So I think all these things kind of work to combine that. And then you have the kind of the back, the backstory kind of mechanics in Call of Cthulhu that, um, you know, uh, instance in the game can actually, you know, the keeper can corrupt uh, a character's backstory, whereas before they may have a strong relationship with someone, you can corrupt that relationship through uh, through the game or a, a relationship with a, a location or a belief or whatever it may be. Uh, again, that all builds in. And um, so I, I guess the reason I kind of labour these other mechanics is because um, there's a preconception that it's just sanity. And actually, there's a, there's a lot of mechanics... Um, that support horror gameplay in Call of Cthulhu. You know, they're very easy to use, they're very simple ones, but they plug in at a very fundamental level in terms of um, how to help build tension and drive the story forward, uh, which is what these mechanics are really all about. Yeah, I was going to just poke over to Thomas because there's a pushing the role mechanic in uh, uh, free league games as well, but also an alien, correct? Is that what you were going to bring up? Sorry. Yeah, yeah pretty much. I think, uh, I mean, uh, Mike is, I com completely agree. And I think that's uh, really worth underscoring that that kind of giving, it, it, it's a particularly useful mechanic. Uh, I, I like it in all games, but, but horror games, it works really well to give agency to players, just like Mike described, but at a cost, because that's a really good way to build tension to give, yeah, you can do this, but it's going to cost you. And that, that building that tension, I mean, that's part of the, the stress mechanic in Alien is also that it, the way it works generally is that, in a, just simplified, is that when you make a role, you can push the role, but then you'll get the stress die. So you will, it, it's exactly that kind of mechanic, that principle that, that, that also Mike touched upon, that you get the chance of another chance to succeed. You can increase your chances. You give more agency, but it will cost you later down the line because it will increase your stress, your tension, and that's going to explode at some point. I think the kicker in Alien is that until you reach that point, you actually get better because those stress dice are actually useful. So the more stressed you are, you get actually sharper until you break. But that's kind of a twist to the general principle. And yeah, like you mentioned, the... Uh, actually, the, the push mechanic is in, in basically all of our games in some form or another. And I think, uh, and I mean, we don't only do horror games, but so I think in general, it's a really great way of, of just giving that kind of extra agency at a cost that you have always had that chance. Do you want to push forward, but it's going to cost you either right now or, or later on? It's like in, in Coriolis, a sci-fi game that, that has a kind of a... Cthulian sense of cosmic horror as well, even though it's a sci-fi game, when you push a, a, a role there, you give, like, they're called darkness points to the, to the game master that the game master can then use for various effects down the line. So you know that you're giving power to the darkness or to, to some kind of uh, the dark between the stars in that game. So I think these kinds of um, mechanics that, that, that kind of increase tension 
just like Mike described, you have them, in, of course, in, in Call of Cthulhu also are, are really great, great tools for, for creating suspense and, and horror. Amanda? Yeah, no, I, I really just want to echo uh, what Thomas and Mike were saying about systems that involve pressing your luck in a horror environment. Um, that's the type of system that I really enjoy. And I feel like those types of mechanical systems are really what separates um, horror that's been injected into a game not meant for it versus a game that specifically sets out to be a horror experience um, that you're specifically running to produce a, um, a horrific effect for your players. And so I'm just going to mention a game that I played a campaign of not too long ago called Blades in the Dark, um, which has a very similar um, push your luck style um, mechanic in which uh, you can, it's entirely subjected to the game master, but your character can push themselves um, to try to accomplish something that might be unlikely given the scenario and you can accumulate stress points and uh, there's a mechanic in between scenes where you can indulge in your vice to reduce your stress points but it's, there's a die roll that's involved and so um, the more the game progresses depending on the way that the dice uh, bounce it really um, sort of just builds in the extra sense of my character's um, a tolerance for these horrible things that have been happening in the game is really getting pushed to its limits. And so now how much do I want to gamble with uh, the negative effects of having all of this stress versus my hope that um, pushing myself and giving myself extra dice to roll in this case uh, will help me solve this problem or will help sort of like move the story uh, forward in a positive way for us and not backfire on us. So um, I just really think that that's a great thing to engage with and to be creative with. Um, as a game master within the mechanic that really reinforces the type of experience um, and the, the suspense and the dread that you're trying to build with your game in the first place. So I, I, I wanted to ask an open question to the panel. Um, do, you, do you feel that these, these mechanics are, um, are essential to your tabletop horror experience? Or if you were playing a game that wasn't traditionally geared toward horror mechanically, um, would you be looking at trying to introduce some of these mechanics to say if you were playing a game of D&D or Pathfinder or 7th C or something like that which doesn't have these sort of these horror mechanics that we're talking about would you just um, go with the, the the flow of the story and the narrative to create your horror atmosphere or would you prefer to either switch systems or to introduce some new mechanics to try to drive that home so it's open question so thoughts anyone um, Crystal I yeah I can go first. Um, so it depends on the story that I want to tell. Um, for like, I would if I were playing a D and D and introducing horror, I'd probably switch to a more narrative approach with telling the horror. Um, also, knowing that um, with my D and D group, my my players will torture themselves way more than I can ever come up with. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will just dangle something in front of them and let them paw at it for a while. <laughs> Um, but I'm also not afraid to incorporate different types of mechanics, whether it's behind the screen where the, the players may not actually know that it's happening, but it's, it's more narrative for me, um, or giving them something tangible, um, that they would have to complete, like, um, doing a puzzle in a certain amount of time, um, where they have to complete the puzzle in order to be able to solve you know, stop the thing from happening or whatever the case might be um, and adding some sort of tangible, well, it may not be strictly mechanical. There is a time limit or there's something set up where there is a, a fail point and then stuff happens. 
Uh, anyone else on that one before we move on? I mean, I think horror can be effective when you run it in a system that's not intentionally meant for it. And a lot of the bigger systems, um, D&D, but I'm thinking about first edition Pathfinder in specific, and to some extent Starfinder as well, they've got little subsystems that do allow you to plug and play certain things. So um, there's a whole hardcover called Horror Adventures that's got um, a number of different subsystems. There's a corruption subsystem um, that allows you, uh, if there's a character that's got some kind of connection to some like dark force, uh, you know, whether it's um, diabolic or whether it's demonic in nature or um, some sort of disease or something like that, that, um, you know, narratively different things kind of happen as that character progresses along that corruption. And so if you use something like that, um, or if you use, um, there are other types of like, there's a madness mechanic that's uh, involved there, really kind of like look for the tools that already exist within these bigger systems to see what might be most appropriate for your game. Um, or uh, come up with something that is maybe on your own, like maybe there's, you know, a percentile uh, role or a table for uh, random events that can happen that can, uh, you know, affect the, the character's while they're trying to go about their different goals or that things that um, are random occurrences are slowly revealing what, uh, you know, is intended to be sort of your, your horror um, reveal later on. Uh, I don't think that you can't uh, run horror in a game that's not meant for it. I just think you kind of have to put some thought into mechanics that do maybe exist that will help you um, or ways that you can uh, you know, reinforce the fact that this isn't just a normal dungeon crawl. There's something weird that's going on here. And what are ways that your characters are experiencing that? Um, those are good questions to ask yourself. Uh, well, we've had some, uh, we've got a few minutes left. And we've had some great, uh, great questions come through both on Twitter and uh, through the, through the zoom chat. So I'd encourage anyone who might have a question that's pop up to, to send those through. Uh, and these are just going to be open questions uh, again. So whoever would, would like to jump in, hopefully generate some conversation. Uh, the one I'd like to start with came from uh, at uh, JamH27James on Twitter. Uh, they said, I find horror RPGs lend themselves well to moral dilemma situations. Does the panel have any tips or ideas for developing these during a session? Um, I personally really love moral dilemmas. I like getting the players to ask themselves and also their characters what is the right or wrong thing to do in any given situation, specifically you know, if it's not particularly clear-cut. And I think horror also lends itself um, a lot to these kind of questions. In, in Stephen King's book on writing, he talks about the importance of introducing a moral dilemma early on in, in any sort of horror story. Um, so yeah, we'd like to, to hear uh, anyone's thoughts on who would like to jump in on, on how to effectively build or develop a moral dilemma or moral situation in your horror story. Yeah, I can yeah, uh, Mike. go somewhere for that way. Um, I think um, I would hesitate to advise anyone to do it on the fly in the middle of a game, um, unless the, uh, the stars truly are right and everything aligns perfectly uh, by kind of random chance of the game. I think it's quite difficult to um, concoct a moral dilemma because that's what we're actually talking about is you need to construe what is a moral dilemma for your characters and the setting and uh, within the context of the you know the scenario campaign that they may be playing and um, that's often not a quick you know one minute thought uh, that does often require a bit of you know pre-thought between games to think you know how can I kind of engineer events to kind of push the players down a certain direction so they are faced with this moral dilemma because ultimately uh, what you're talking about is uh, you know which I, we, we're going to have to make a choice and both choices are bad which one is 
not as bad as the other. Uh, and sometimes, it, it, you know, they are equally as bad. And, and it just comes down to what the players, you know, want to do or, or inspires them to try and find a third way to kind of, you know, try and save the day, as it were. But I think those kind of real gripping, you know, where the players are kind of debating and it, and it takes most of the night because they're, they're really at the heart of this kind of matter. Um, they, they require thought. And, and, and I would advise to, you know, to really think about how, how that might happen. But he, and, and as I say, you know, you want to try and engineer it to move forward to it. But equally, sometimes you don't want to force it too much. You want to kind of let it come naturally almost. It's that kind of strange thing. You've got to kind of plan and engineer it, but then you've got to kind of let it breathe and almost, you know, let it come upon the players as if you're not imposing it. Because obviously, um, players will rail if they, if they think you've just made this up and to make, it, make their lives hard. And it won't have the same effect. You've got to almost let it become the player's idea. Um, and the, the, my advice is it's a great thing. Um, you can't do it all the time. Uh, and you really need to think about how you're going to make this happen because it, it plays off the group. And again, I'll go back to it and I'll say it again. Know your players. If you know your players, you'll know what maybe the buttons are in terms of what, what could be a difficult choice for them, you know, in terms of how that might work. It's not an easy answer, but it's not an easy question. Uh, anyone else on the uh, importance of moral dilemmas and such? Uh, just one thing that came to mind uh, when, when Mike was talking here is that um, I feel for horror games particularly that I think one-shot games tend to work better, at least for me, um, because it's uh, in a campaign game where, where the characters are supposed to, to continue playing for with other adventures down the line, they kind of can reduce the, the level of tension and horror because the stakes are maybe a bit lower. And I think that ties into the idea of a moral dilemma because in a one-shot game, you can put everything on the line. And that moral dilemma in the end, that final choice can be so definitive. It can define the characters' lives, whether they live or die, whatever. It can be everything is on the line, which is much harder to do uh, in a campaign game. So I think, at least in my experience, uh, getting that moral, moral dilemma really to kick in fully uh, has mostly been the case in one-shots for me. If I can just, just add on to the end of that, Thomas, because I agree with you completely. The difference I would say is uh, I think it's easier to create in a one-shot. I completely agree with you. But I think it has far more effect in the campaign when you've got a character that the player has really bought into yep. over a length yep. of time. And I think that's, I think, you know, they, they both do it, but I think uh, in slightly different ways. Uh, Amanda, did you have something to add? Yeah, I was just going to, um, to, to echo Tomasa and Mike and say, you know, I think that moral dilemmas need to have room to breathe and they really need to have um, the weight and the importance of them assigned to them, whether that's, you know, it's the thing that happens at the end of the one shot um, or, you know, it's uh, the thing that happens early on and then the decision has to be made later on. Uh, it's really important to kind of let the players realize what decision they have to make um, and potentially be able to create a third situation, um, as you mentioned uh, so astutely there, Tomas, and really let them kind of sit with it 
and think about what are the what is actually happening here, what's being asked of me, what you know are the implications um, of these things, and really allow that weight to kind of settle down and um, be as affecting as it can be. Because if you're doing mul these multiple moral dilemmas, you know, boom, 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 all one after the other, it's very easy to become desensitized to that as a player, and so that kind of undermines what your goal as the game master is, um, you know, which is to create the, that thinking sort of like very deep kind of experience that um, you can really get into when you go into one moral dilemma that's been used properly. Uh, so the next question we have is is one that people might think is a bit cut or dry, but I go back and forth between it and I'd love to know uh, the panel's thoughts on it. It comes from uh, Mr. Shiny from the Zoom chat. and uh, They ask quite simply, do you think miniatures can you be used effectively in horror games? Thomas, you're nodding. Um, yeah, uh, actually, n not really. <laughs> so, no, uh, I mean, not to my experience. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, but to my it's not something that I've been, I mean, in, it depends on what kind of horror you're doing, though. That's why I'm kind of conflicted on it, because in, like in Alien, the map is actually key and, and moving on the map, uh, uh, because you, you that kind of exploration into whatever you want, the, some derelict spaceship or wherever you are, that's really part of the experience and having these, I mean, the game doesn't come with miniatures, but there are counters for like uh, move, um, movement sensor pings where you think something is moving and then using that kind of tools and, and you could use miniatures for that, that works. But for in another type of game, uh, like Vazen that I mentioned, that uh, Gothic horror, I think I would have a hard time using uh, using miniatures in an effective way. So it, for me, it really depends on the type of horror, the type of game. Not a very clear cut answer, but that's the best I best I got. I have got an answer to an yeah. answer if you want it very quickly. Of course, Mike. Um, I don't use miniatures in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I, I I agree with Thomas. I don't find they help my game, uh, but I think I can see some people might find it useful. I have used miniatures once in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, I was, uh, it was during a campaign and the players were going to start the camp, start this next session, uh, basically um, running headlong into this massive kind of uh, cult ritual. So I spent uh, a few hours before they all turned up setting up the temple. Uh, I put 300 miniatures on there just to kind of, you know, they, they were all sorts of miniatures, whatever I could find as all these cultists, I put a big cloth over it and then waited for the players to come. And they said, yeah, I, so are you going in? Yeah, yeah, we're going in. And then revealed it to show them there's just the sheer scale of what they were running into uh, to kind of create the effects of going like, oh my, you know, I didn't realize there was that many of them. And it just, that, that, but you know, it was purely for that effect. But other than that, I haven't really used them either. Amanda Crystal, thoughts on miniatures in, in horror, in horror games? Can they be um, effective? I, I I completely agree that it depends on the game, um, but I also feel that if you are really good at kit bashing and making your own minis or creating your own miniatures or something like that um, out of whatever spare parts you have from everything, um, or even drawing, 3D rendering, anything like that, uh, that is definitely having a visual at the right moment is good. If you're, if you're hunting something that's horrific and you show them the mini, like the first five minutes into the game, you lose all the mystique of what's happening. You have to reveal 
what is happening and what you see at the right moment if you are going to use the mini. Uh, so another great question from over on Twitter coming from uh, at, at KindEyeGames. Can you give a specific example of a truly chilling, disturbing, or thrilling moment in one of your horror games and why it was so effective? What is a takeaway in terms of advice? I, I would imagine most of us should have at least one example of this. Um, Mike, I'd hate for you to, you have to use your 300 piece miniature uh, <laughs> diorama as another example, but <laughs> you know, think of the, uh, a particularly chilling or thrilling moment and why was it so effective? Uh, if you, you're thinking, I, I can probably go first here because it sort of ties into some of the things we were talking about before, but in the tail end of um, the first edition Dark Heresy campaign, uh, I ran a few years ago. Um, uh, we'd uh, built up a whole, uh, we had these very well-established characters and there was this ongoing uh, war between the idea of radical inquisitorship and heretical inquisitorship and Puritan inquisitorship and all that such. And uh, there, there was a moment where we got to pose that very, uh, very stressful horror-y moral dilemma to the players to the point where um, it was, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, it was about an hour of the players sitting around being really unsure of what to do. And it just really echoes sort of what Mike was saying, that it is very, very effective if you can get the moral question correct for the players and the characters in a campaign after so long. Um, and I think it was, yeah, it's sort of a combination of a lot of the things we've been talking about, and that's why that moment was so effective. Uh, so that, that's my one, I would say, yeah. Nobody? Nobody has a scary moment uh, that they thought was good? <laughs> yeah. I, oh. Go ahead. Amanda? I, mean, I've, I can tell stories about games all day, so I don't want to just sit here and take up all of the airspace. <laughs> um, I, I had I, a moment. Oh, oh, go ahead. No, 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 no you go ahead. Crystal, go. It's right. I actually had a moment where, as a GM, I made a mistake, and it turned into a completely horror, horrific scene that we didn't realize for months later um, because I... Uh, it was actually the introduction to my D&D game. I had them doing like little side quests and I meant to have them hunt owl bears and instead uh, said bug bears, which are humanoids. And they had to collect the skins off of these creatures. So they were <laughs> humanoids, um, which after, um, after, you know, figuring out that, that I was having them skin these humanoids, um, uh, there were in-character repercussions from it, um, including a bugbear union, um, because <laughs> they're also sentient. <laughs> um, but like, you can you can take mistakes and and run with them and make them horrific. Because that that was I turned my my D and D char characters who are all some form of good or lawful into Ed Gein by accident. And not one of the players actually questioned it. So, like, if the players didn't question it, I assume the characters didn't, and didn't have an issue with it. And so that also plays up again into, like, morality and stuff like that, too. So, you know, as the players figured out what they did, that sort of started to weigh on them as well. So. Amanda, did you have one you wanted to share? Yeah, um, I really enjoy, I think Tomas mentioned this um, before, but I really enjoy horror one-shots because I really feel like that the amount of things you can um, accomplish within a, a one-shot um, is sort of exponential because a horror always uh, has a specific pace to it. And then once you've gone through that pace and you've, you've gotten to the end and the nuance and the, um, you know, the falling action and stuff, like it's really hard to try to expand past that. So it's, 
uh, it's fun for me to run shorter one shots or two shots. And I run a lot of um, convention games. And I had uh, one from Gen Con of last year, um, in fact, in which uh, it was a con game, but I was running it for some pretty close friends. And we were uh, running a game called Dread, which some of you may be familiar with. Uh, it's a pretty rules-like game. It uses a Jenga tower. Um, it's all about suspension. And uh, every time a character is taking an action that's outside of what uh, they would reasonably be able to do, given their gears and their ability, uh, they would pull, they pull a brick. And if the tower falls over, um, that character either dies in a horrific way in that moment, or you as the, the GM can hold that back and figure out a, a very cinematic or very satisfying way that that character dies. And in most games of Dread, almost all the characters die, and there's maybe one survivor. Um, but I was running, I was running a scenario in which um, the characters were really just supposed to go from A to B. They were taking um, some, they were taking something uh, to a manor, and they had to pass through this uh, creepy, spooky. Um, woods and there was a little bit of a, a subplot about uh, a doctor who was supposed to be there with them but he hadn't showed up uh, on time and they had to leave without him and um, some of them were one of them was the the guy's sister and so there was a little bit of like concern um, about what's going on and as they're progressing through the woods they're finding uh, more and more things are off and uh, it turns out that um, there's a, a graveyard that they're they're going past and something happens and the wagon breaks down so they've got to go you know like get supplies to repair the wagon and they're finding out that the graves have been disturbed and then they continue to go on and they find out that there have been some graves that have been exhumed and uh, there are you know strange things that happen and zombies uh, end up coming and they come upon this little caretaker shack and uh, as they open the door I very like in a very florid way in describing what they see. And it turns out that, you know, there was a zombie with an arm missing, a zombie with a leg missing. There was like a headless zombie. And I basically described this giant zygote flesh golem uh, that is just revealed in this horrible way. And it turns out the doctor is basically Victor Frankenstein. But as I'm like going through the woods and all of these like strange things are kind of popping up, there were a number of people who were um, spectating this horror event and as if they're all like oh what is all this what is this about with the graves being open and like what kind of horrible thing are they going to find then when <laughs> when I described the opening of the door and seeing you know the the terrible flesh golem experiment that has roared to life and is ripping apart the doctor as soon as the door is open uh, there the spectators just go oh my god because they weren't expecting it to be that huge of a thing. Um, but that was, you know, that's an example of where like building that tension and dropping hints here or there that aren't super obvious about what it's going to be was really an effective way for the players to kind of experience, um, you know, that reveal and for people to, to see how, you know, subtlety can really build up to like a 10 or an 11 uh, at the very end when that, that reveal happened. So that was, that was a fun, eff effective way that I got to be like really gross and graphic because they were my friends. <laughs> And people who knew us were stopping by and watching, and uh, it was it was a really fun time. It was a good horror game. Uh, one last very simple question before we wrap, wrap up uh, came from uh, Breeden in the chat. Uh, what is each panelist's favorite horror RPG or setting? Um, Crystal. Oh, okay. of course. Um, I I have to go with Vampire the Masquerade. It was my very first, and um, getting to add my voice to to that world um, has been amazing. Um, and I, I think it will always continue to be my baby. Uh, Thomas? 
Well, it's it's kind of hard. I mean, that's uh, I mean, having uh, recently created a horror game, it's it's kind of the you know, it's it's the game, the horror game I always wanted is the one I kind of we made. <laughs> so, so at the moment, you know, Alien. But historically, or going you know through my, I mean, Call of Cthulhu was the horror game that probably meant the most to me in the early days of role playing, and it it continues to be an awesome game. So that also holds a very special place in my role playing heart. Amanda. Wow. Oh my gosh. I love so many of those games and I really hate to, to copy Crystal, but um, Vampire the Masquerade and the Old World of Darkness was uh, really my first like uh, actual horror game that was meant to be a horror game. So I think I have to pick that one because putting myself in the shoes of the monster for the first time was a very, a very formative early experience for me. And it turns out that I love playing the monster now and in video games, I always want to play the monster. <laughs> So I think I'm going to pick uh, Vampire the Masquerade just for the, the richness of that setting and the, um, the aesthetic that really appeals to me um, and uh, just the customization of different clans of vampires um, that you can pick. And I got to plug Gangrel for life because <laughs> I do love my <laughs> feral, uh, you know, forest dwelling vampires. Uh, Mike? Um, I, I don't know. I've never really played much horror. Um <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, I, I, I'm kind of partial to Call of Cthulhu, but that's, uh, you know, everyone knows that already. So I'm going to say two other games as well as Call of Cthulhu. I think uh, what Thomas has done with Alien is is fantastic. I think it's a, it's a really nice uh, system. Uh, it really kind of does what it's meant to do. And uh, Alien's one of my all-time favorite films, so why wouldn't I love a game about it? Um, and um, uh, one that maybe not so many people have heard about, because my other love is kind of that kind of 50s B horror film kind of stuff. So uh, a game, I don't even know if it's still in print. It came from the Late, Late, Late Show, which is all about B-movie horror. Uh, that's, awesome. uh, that's, a, that's a great game to check out if you can find it. Um, for me, I mean, it, I like so many horror games that I constantly change depending on my mood. Um, I'm obsessed with Alien at the moment, and when my Vason arrives in the mail later today, I'm probably going to be obsessed with that for a little while. Um, but I really have to acknowledge my uh, my origins, and uh, for me, it, it's going to be um, Vampire the Requiem. Because without that game, um, not to sound too hyperbolic, but uh, I would not be where I am in my life and in my career without if I didn't pick up that, that game back when I was a teenager. Um, so we're about to wrap up. Thank you for everybody for, um, for joining us. Uh, from wherever you are in the world um, I've been Brian Holland you can find me on Twitter at BW Holland I'll just get each of the panelists to just go around and just remind everyone who they are and where they can be found online if they would like to be uh, Amanda hi I'm um, so I'm Amanda Hammond I'm the editorial director for Kobold Press and you can find me on Twitter at Amanda Hammond that's H-A-M-O-N uh, Crystal I'm Crystal Mazer you can find me at Twitter at body and soul 152 or on Instagram at the same name um, and I do have a Facebook page. You can follow and like or like it there. Um, and I do have a website. It's called thegeekypanda.com, where you can get all everything that I've written for is on there. Thomas? Yeah, Thomas Hernstam from Free League. Uh, I'm not that big uh, personally, but so really, if you want to follow what we're doing, uh, Free League's uh, is on, obviously on Facebook and Twitter uh, at in it, it'll, it's a Swedish one. We're stuck with it, so it's Fria Ligan, F R I A L I G A N, on both Facebook and Twitter. You can find us there. Uh, Mike, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Mason. Uh, but uh, you're more likely to hear about what I'm doing day to day in terms of Call of Cthulhu and Nara uh, at chaosium.com and uh, you know the Chaosium Facebook page. 
and Twitter account. Please just uh, follow us there. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your Gen Con. We can't wait to see you um, throughout the con in whatever form that takes, be it at a game or at another panel. So thanks so much, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.